Well, welcome all of you refugees from the West coming over to Central. It's been a really cool day today, so uh, very nice. This is a, an easy up. We're going to see how easy this is to get up here. Here we go. We got this over there. Go, go, go. There you go. All right, here we go. Uh, big, strong. All right, there it is. That wasn't that hard. And we got that guy there. And we got, hey, we're getting there. Single dude uh, setting us up. Nice. All right, so there it is. This is a big tent. This is a big tent. Now, for those of you whose view is blocked, in just a couple of minutes, that will go down. But uh, it's a big tent. Now, why is there a big tent? Because this series is called Radical Unity. So today we're going to explore what it means to be a big tent church. Now, in the vernacular, big tent is defined this way. Big tent is a widely inclusive culture that allows people of differing backgrounds, opinions, and interests to be members of the same group. That's what it is to be a big tent. Now, human nature doesn't like big tents. It doesn't like diversity. It doesn't like a culture that allows people of differing backgrounds and opinions to participate in something that we once thought as kind of a safe, small uh, community of same. Big tent kind of breaks through that and says, no, this is going to be a, a bigger uh, uh, you know, organization, more diverse, and, and we're going to welcome in people with different backgrounds and different opinions. That's a big tent. Now, big tents can be scary for some people. Why can big tent organizations be scary, especially in the, in the regions of politics and religion? Why can a big tent community be a little scary? Well, for a lot of people, it's this idea that the message might be diluted, that, you know, we started as a small tent, we were all unified, could be, again, a political party that all kind of spoke the same language, and now there's diversity within that political party. And, and so sometimes the unity of message can get diluted. Sometimes our own voice can get diluted. So if we're in a community of three people, we have one-third the voice. If we're a community of 30 people, we have one-thirtieth the voice and the power. And so a bigger tent can sometimes feel as though my voice is, is getting lost. Sometimes in a bigger tent community, there is a, a lack of control. You know, who, who runs the place? It's big, it's diverse. Who runs the show? And so in, in the areas, particularly of politics and religion, big tent can be quite scary. Now, I'm going to... Um, reduce this tent size a little bit. This is a, a very easy system to do that. It's going to kind of fall, so don't worry. No gasping. No gasping allowed. It's okay. It's all right. Everybody's going to be safe and sound. All right. Let's get this thing uh, reduced here. And then one more thing. All right. Now, big tent. Oh, ow. Gee. All right. So we're out of the big tent. Big tents are, are, are scary to people, especially in religion. So in religion, smaller and smaller splinterings are happening. In fact, I'll show this to you. It's a pretty complicated graph, but you'll get kind of the big picture. This is the stream of every religion on earth. And it starts at the bottom in ancient times, 4,000 BC, 3,000 BC, 1,000 BC. Right around 500 BC, religious thinking started kind of splintering all over the world. And then you have Jesus and, and Christianity split off of Judaism. Several hundred years later, you have Islam starts, and then the Eastern religions have always kind of been this, this Eastern thread uh, throughout the Eastern world. And so there's all these tributaries off of these religious, um, uh, you know, thinking, uh, and, and over time, it splinters. Over time, these tributaries splinter into smaller and smaller worlds. Now, I want to show you the, the Christian world here. That's the Christian world. One half of the sects of religion, you've got to be careful with that word, one half with the, of the sects of the religions are in Christianity. 
because we have splintered and splintered and splintered. There are now 40,000 denominations in the world, Christian denominations, 40,000. And I can't name three of them that aren't trying to splinter again. Why? Because we want smaller and smaller communities of sameness. That gives us a sense of comfort. That gives us a sense of, of safety. And, and it's understandable. Again, it's human nature. As we've talked about over the course of this Radical Unity series, it's human nature to want to be around sameness. I'm going to call this remnant theology. Remnant theology. Remnant theology is the thinking that there are only a few faithful, and of course, I'm one of the faithful. That's remnant theology. That there are only a few who believe the right things. There are only a few who do the right things. There are only a few who worship the right way. That's a remnant. And God really loves and blesses the remnant. And of course, I'm part of the remnant. Uh, all of us think we believe the right way and do the right things, right? It's our, it's our nature. This is, is remnant theology. I'll also kind of call it umbrella theology, right? It's I've got a small world around me. The smaller, the better. The, the more same, the better. And so if I'm walking around in my little umbrella with my little group of friends and my little family, we all kind of look the same way and believe the same way, and, and we have the this, this same value system, we look at that big tent and we think, I'm not sure this group's going to fit real, real well in that big tent because there are people there who are different. They're different than us, look different, believe different. Uh, and it's, it can be kind of scary. It can definitely be scary. Now, remnant theology is heavy in the Old Covenant, which is contained in the Old Testament. Um, as you have the nation of Israel, a, a very tiny people group, um, start growing, and, and, they, and they became the 12 tribes of Israel that settled the land. Then 10 tribes of Israel were wiped off the face of the map, and you have two tribes left. And in those two tribes, you have a few people who are faithful, and then people who aren't. And so this idea of a remnant theology, that there's a small group of faithful people who deserve to be blessed, that's the basic premise of the Old Covenant contained within the Old Testament. We find this in Zechariah 8, verse 12. God says, the earth will produce its crops, and the heavens will release the dew. I will cause the remnant in Judah and Israel to inherit these blessings. That's remnant theology. Here's these few remaining faithful Jews. They only worshiped God. They tried to obey the law. And God says, hey, listen, I'm going to bless you if you do these things. So verse 16 is now a list of all the things they have to do in order to continue earning God's blessing. That's the if word of the old covenant. And, and radical unity is getting rid of the if word. Radical unity says it's not about a conditional relationship. You do your part, I'll do my part. God does his part if we do our part. It, it's, it's removing that kind of small thinking, the small remnant theology, living under just that small umbrella, hoping that God is gonna bless us because we're good and righteous and faithful. That old thinking was crucified with Christ. The thinking that if you do these things, your little group will be blessed, that thinking was crucified with Christ. And here comes Jesus wrecking the whole remnant theology, which was so popular among the Jewish people. He comes in and he destroys it. And he introduces what I'm going to call inclusion theology. And we're going to call it that because that's the name I made up. So here's, here's the thinking. Jesus comes in and he is kicking the doors wide open the small little faithful remnant of religious leaders, they thought they were under their umbrella, their group of sameness, and that God would bless them because they were so good. Here comes Jesus, and he's kicking down every single door, and he's saying, everybody, everywhere is welcome, and come as you are. Jesus put up a big tent, and he says, everybody is welcome. Everybody can be included. 
And if I could put this inclusion theology in the shortest possible terms, here's how I would do it. That through Christ, the forgiving grace of God extends to the ends of the earth and everyone everywhere is invited to enter his community of faith radically united by love. That's a version of the new covenant, this new way of thinking that Jesus created, this big tent, that God is a God of grace and goodness and forgiveness and mercy, and that pours out to everyone everywhere, and it's received by faith, not by works, not by religion, not by bloodline. It's a remarkable thing, absolutely remarkable. And last week, we detailed how Jesus taught about this inclusion theology as he teaches the story and the parable of the prodigal son and the good Samaritan. And he says, it's not about how you behave. It's not about the blood flowing through your veins. There's this welcome embrace of God, the heavenly father, to forgive and accept us all, all of humanity as daughters and sons of God. And then Jesus lived a life of inclusion. He welcomed the sinner, the sick, the poor, the lonely, the rejected. He, he spoke to the woman at the well, the Samaritan. He served a Roman centurion, the violent invader. Uh, he ministered to a woman caught in adultery. He's breaking all these religious barriers. Now, by the way, imagine being the woman caught in adultery. Nobody knows her name. And uh, you're going around eternity in heaven and everybody, you're the woman caught in adultery. Nobody knows, I thought that's pretty sad. Anyway, I don't think we'll be defined by our failures in heaven. But this was a revolutionary idea that Jesus broke all the barriers and he said, welcome, you're welcome, you're welcome as you are, where you are, with your ethnicity, with your economy, with your failures, with your brokenness. Come here, come here. I want to show you grace and forgiveness. And in relationship, let's walk to a better place. This is the revolution of Jesus. This is radical unity. Now, we've talked about the life of Christ. Today, we're going to focus a little bit on the prayer of Christ. There is one prayer of Jesus in the Gospels. There's five one-sentence prayers. Three of those were on the cross. There's five one-sentence prayers, but there's only one major prayer of Jesus in the Gospels. Some people might think, well, that's the Lord's Prayer. Nah, the Lord's Prayer is really not the Lord's Prayer. It's our prayer. Jesus says, this is how you should pray. But when he is praying to the Heavenly Father, there's only one place that prayer, uh, that prayer appears. And it's in John chapter 17. John chapter 17 has been called the holy of holies of the Bible. Because here you have the son of God praying to the father God, united in the spirit of God. We are getting a peek into the Trinity, father, son, and spirit by the prayer of Jesus. Not only that, these are his last words before he leaves the upper room to go to the garden of Gethsemane to be arrested, tortured, and crucified. So John 17 is sort of his last will and testament. What, what he is passing on to his disciples to continue. It's an incredible prayer. It is his prayer to his heavenly father as he pours out his passion, his pleas to God for the kind of future he wants to see created and the kind of community we can be. Jesus in John 17 prays for three things. Uh, first, he prays for us to experience radical unity with God. To experience radical unity with God. When we talk about radical unity, we have to start with our relationship with God because what we perceive about our relationship with God is how we are going to treat others. If we believe God is disappointed with us, if we believe God is angry with us, if we believe we're separate from God because we're not good enough or right enough, then that kind of love, so-called, is gonna spill out to others and we're gonna divide with others and we're gonna be disappointed in others. But if we believe, as Jesus himself proved, that there is nothing that separates us from God because of his grace and his goodness and his forgiveness, which he just gives in Jesus, without cost, without condition, here you go, you are forgiven, you're my son, you're my daughter. 
If we believe that message of radical unity, then that's going to change everything in terms of how we treat each other. If we are loved unconditionally, we are going to uh, love others unconditionally. If we are defined by grace and goodness from God, then we're going to define others by grace and goodness. If we believe God believes the best about us and calls us his holy, dearly loved children, Ephesians chapter 1, then we're going to believe the best in others. So as Jesus begins to pray to the Heavenly Father, his first priority is for us to know that we are radically united to the Heavenly Father by grace. Here's how he starts the prayer. Jesus looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Jesus understands his job. His job is to give eternal life. That's his job. Now, when we think of eternal life, what do we normally think? We think about heaven, going to heaven when we die. When we think of eternal life, it's like, when I die, I go to heaven. That's eternal life. Well, that's not in the thinking of Jesus. That is not a Hebrew way of thinking. It's not a Jesus way of thinking. And so he defines eternal life. Now, fortunately, sometimes the Bible is very clear and Jesus is very clear. Now, this is eternal life. Makes it easy. That they may know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's eternal life. It's really simple. Eternal life is knowing God through Jesus. That's eternal life. We see Jesus, we see the Father. We see the love of Christ, we see the love of, uh, of the Father. We see the sacrificial uh, you know, um, uh, love of Christ through the cross. We see the heart of the Father who's sacrificially loving towards us. Everything we see in Jesus, we know of God the Father. And so eternal life is knowing God the Father through Jesus the Son. So when the scripture talks about eternal life, that word eternal means this, this eternal past and eternal future reality. It's just eternal past, eternal future. So when we think of eternal life, think of this river here. It's a beautiful river. Uh, think of the river, river as a metaphor of Jesus himself. It is pure. It is clear. It is refreshing. It is life-giving. That's Jesus pure, refreshing, life-giving. That's Jesus, eternally proceeding from the heavenly Father, right? He's the eternal Son, eternally proceeding from the Father. And, and, and he is, is charged by God to give eternal life to the world. So the stream who is Jesus Christ is pouring onto the earth. And the whole goal is for all of humanity to see the ministry of Jesus, to know that Jesus brings us into a direct relationship with the Father without any barrier, freely by grace. And when we know that, it's just like jumping into the river, right? We're jumping into the river. That's why baptism is, is the celebration of somebody coming to faith in Christ. Because Jesus is the living water. He cleanses, he forgives us, he refreshes, he gives new and eternal life, right? And so this river is, is the person and work of Jesus, cleansing us, refreshing us, and giving us new life. So when we believe that we are radically united to God the Father through Jesus, that his crucifixion pays the price for our sin, that his resurrection gives us eternal life, we are just jumping in, into the river. We are in Christ, united to God in Christ. That's eternal life. And it's a wonderful thing to receive for sure. Secondly, Jesus prays not just that we would know our radical unity with God the Father, but that we would be radically unified in our mission. Jesus prays for radical unity in our mission. Now, in the prayer, Jesus makes it very clear what our mission is, and it's a doozy. John 17, 16. Jesus says, they do not belong to this world any more than I do. He goes on to say in verse 17, I don't want them out of the world, I want them in the world, but they don't really live in the world. Their heart's not in the world, their, their heart's in heaven. 
Their heart's in this, in this uh, wonderful new reality of radical unity with God and with each other. But Jesus says, I don't want to take them out of the world. I want to send them into the world. And so in verse 18, he says this, just as you sent me into the world, I am sending them into the world. Now that's a doozy. Here's why. Jesus says that we have the same mission that Jesus has. We have the same mission Jesus has. As the Father sent me into the world, I send you into the world. It's the same mission. Well, what's the mission of Christ? The way we say it here at Rancho is that we are thousands of friends advancing the cause of Christ. So what's the cause of Christ? The cause of Christ, we say, is four things. And this is just how we articulate it. Uh, certainly other churches would articulate it maybe a little differently. But here are the four things we think are key to our mission, which is advancing the cause of Christ. First and foremost, to reveal God's transforming grace. It is all about grace. If we're just peddling religion and Christianity is just another religion, it's a dead thing. Religion is dead. What we're doing is we're revealing that God is a God of grace, a heavenly father who loves us and embraces us and forgives us, right? Just as we are, and then leads us forward to be conformed to the image of Christ over time. This is our God, a God of grace, and we just reveal that to the world. That's what Jesus did, that's what we do. Creating a new community of love. We're not here in church checking off a box. We did a religious uh, you know, deed, God's gonna bless us, he's happy with us, we went to church. No, this isn't just to check off a religious box, we're a new community of love. And so we're dedicated to loving each other. If somebody's hurting, we serve them. If somebody's celebrating, we celebrate with them, right? If somebody's getting off the rails, we, we come alongside of them, as the Bible says, in gentleness and restore them and restore families, right? And not only are we a new community of love here, but we wanted to, to be used by God to make our entire community more loving. This is what Jesus did. He says, there's a whole new community of love that has one law to love God and love others. That's it, a community of love. Then Jesus, of course, equipped the next generation. Jesus had disciples by the hundreds. He was getting a little older uh, when his public ministry started. He was getting to be about 30. And so that was considered the age of the elder when you're about 30. Um, things were a little different 2,000 years ago. Uh, and so he raised up a bunch of young folks that we call disciples today. And he equipped them and sent them to change the world. And they literally did that. And that's why we love equipping the next generation and why we have such an amazing children's ministry and youth programs and, and young adult ministry. It's why we have Rancho Christian School. And uh, even coming today, I haven't been able to, to worship with you all in a, in a while with two different campuses, but to, to, to sit right there and to see two middle school students helping to lead us in worship. It's just an amazing thing, right, to equip the next generation as Christ-centered leaders and then to help people in need. If you were to walk around uh, with Jesus 2,000 years ago, what he did with his life and ministry is just help people in need, constantly helping people in need. And so we get to do that. That's our mission. That's advancing the cause of Christ, to live a life of grace and invite others to that grace, live in a community of love, equip the next generation in our homes, in our church, and help people in need. And we get to do that all over the place. It's awesome. It's similar to the military. If I were to, 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 um, to make an analogy to the church, it would probably be more with the military. Um, the, the military, as you well know, I'm not a military man, but the military, as you know, uh, puts a bunch of diverse people into a single cohort and, and puts them through hell. This is, this is their job. This is their mission. They love it. You put a bunch of diverse people in one cohort and put them in boot camp and send them to hell together, right? 
They are suffering together and they're grinding together. And they're from all corners of the country. There's black, there's white, there's Hispanic, there's Asian. They don't care about economy. They don't care about race. They don't care about background. You throw them in this group and send them to the hell of boot camp. And, and what's experienced in boot camp is, is very similar with every single cohort that goes through. First of all, there's a ton of conflict because they don't know each other. They don't trust each other. All of, of their worst elements come out. And there's even some fistfights and brawls in, those, in those, uh, you know, those, those cohorts, those platoons or whatever. And, uh, but as they go, the military only gives them tasks that they have to do together. They never give them a task they can do uh, just with one person. And so they're doing very difficult things all as a group. And so what happens? They begin to build trust. They begin to build friendships. That, you know, they might've come from a little small umbrella of same. Now they're in a, in a big kind of cohort, big tent, diverse tent, and they are unified in their mission. And using kind of the old vernacular, they become a band of brothers, a band of brothers. And they're unified in their mission, they're unified in their deployment, and they're unified in love for each other. And a lot of times, you know, this cohort becomes lifelong friends, inseparable brothers. Why is that? Because they had a common mission. They had a common mission. The third thing that Jesus prayed for is uh, this radical unity among a global community of Christ followers. A radical uh, community, uh, a radical, <laughs> radical unity among a global community of Christ followers. Jesus knew that there would be people who would come to faith even after his crucifixion. Now, at the time Jesus prayed this prayer, you wouldn't put much stock in Jesus. If you had some money to invest in stock, you wouldn't put that money to invest in Jesus. His ministry was in rapid decline at the time he says this prayer. His ministry was in rapid decline. He was very popular in Galilee, thousands of followers in Galilee. Then his teachings got a little harder. He started talking more about selflessness and kindness, uh, loving your enemy. He started talking more about this community of acceptance, more of this big tent, and people didn't want that. They didn't like that, so they started peeling away. And he's very popular north in the hillbilly hick regions of Galilee, not so popular in Jerusalem. So when he went to Jerusalem, he knew he was public enemy number one when he walked in those gates. And the city started getting, you know, just kind of boiling up with controversy about Jesus. Rumors started being spread about Jesus so that people were now conspiring to kill him. So when he's in the upper room here with the disciples, he just served communion, the Last Supper. He says, this is my blood, which is shed for you, the wine. This is my body broken for you, the bread. So here he is, his ministry is in decline. The city wants him dead. He just tells his disciples, his blood is about to be spilled and his body is about to be broken. And then he prays this prayer, John 17, 20. I'm praying not only for these disciples here, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. At the time, you would think, who in the world would ever possibly believe in Jesus after this? Ministry is in decline. He just says he's, he's going to be killed. A matter of about 12 hours later, he's being crucified. Who in their right mind would think there would be believers who would follow? But there were. There were believers who started to, to follow Jesus Christ because not only was he crucified as the greatest act of love the world has ever known, but on the third day, he rose again from the dead in victory. And when he rose again from the dead in victory over all of the injustice and suffering and sin of the world, when he rose again from the dead, he reiterated this concept that there will be a global big tent community of people who follow Jesus. Matthew 28, 19. As you go, disciples, 
make other disciples. As you go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus says this big tent of radical unity with God and this big tent of radical unity with each other is going to spread all over the globe. All over the globe. And so here we are today. We are at the point of the world that is the exact farthest point away from Jerusalem where Jesus prayed this prayer. And right now, at this very moment, this very day, this tent of radical unity with God and this tent of radical unity with each other is covering the whole earth. It's phenomenal. But this global community of faith, Jesus has a prayer for, and it's a powerful prayer. And he closes his prayer with four verses. And if I were to urge you to memorize any four verses of the Bible, it would be this. These are my favorite verses in my favorite chapter of the Bible. Because here is Jesus sharing with his heavenly father the exact kind of community he wants to see of those who follow him. And get the theme. The theme is so clear and it repeats so often. We hear the heart of Jesus. We've got to ask ourselves some questions here. Are we investing in this way toward each other? Let me read it. I'm praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one. As you are in me, Father, I am in you. And may they be one in us, so that the world will believe you sent me. I've given them the glory you gave me, so they may be one as we are one. I am in them, and you are in me. He's repeating himself over and over. What is he saying? He's saying, Father, you and I are in perfect unity. This is the Trinity. The Father in perfect unity with the Son, bound by the perfect love of the Spirit. And then Jesus says, I want everybody who believes in me going forward. I want everybody to love us, to know the love that we have for us, to know that they are as loved by God as we love each other, and then to love each other with the same kind of perfect love. And if you think I'm going a little too far by using the word perfect, here's verse 23. Jesus is praying for us right now. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. The theme is inescapable. It can't be missed. Ten times in four verses, Jesus says, may they be one, may be they unified, may they be in us and in each other, one with us and one with each other. May, may they share the same love for each other that we share together as father and son. It's quite a call. If you look at the church, kind of broadly, if you look at the church of Jesus Christ, is the church answering this prayer? Is the church fulfilling the heart of Jesus here? Jesus wants his church in perfect unity. Does that mean we have to perfectly agree on everything? What's the answer? No, the church never has. The disciples of Jesus never did. We'll see next week in the book of Acts, they fought bitterly. I'm surprised they even survived. And next week we're gonna have a lot of fun because we're gonna take all the division of the early church and we're gonna talk about all of our divisions in our country right now and to imagine what that might look like to live in perfect unity. To live in perfect unity does not mean we have to agree on everything. Doesn't mean we have to have the same doctrines. Doesn't mean we have to live the same way. It doesn't mean that we have to agree on the same kinds of worship. It doesn't mean we all have to all have the same opinions or be in the same political party. We could and should have a very diverse big tent church. And I'm talking not just about one church, I'm talking about a global church, a globally unified church. But right now we are splintering and splintering. We're in 40,000 fragments, soon becoming 100,000 fragments. 
That's not the heart of Jesus here. The heart of Jesus is to be diverse, to embrace each other, to embrace our differences, to be united in our union with God, united in our mission to advance the cause of Christ, and united in love, to be united in love. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. A church perfectly united by love. That's the goal. And so we have to ask ourselves the questions, is, is can we start here? Can Rancho be that kind of a church, right? And the reason why we recall Rancho United and Radical Unity is we're trying to ingrain this in each other's lives here. As hard as it is to get out of our umbrella, safe, comfortable thinking, and to get into a, a more diverse community of a big tent and to say, hey, listen, we're going to celebrate our unity by grace through Jesus Christ. We're going to celebrate our common mission, and we're going to celebrate our journey to be perfectly united by love exactly the way Jesus prayed. That is no easy task, but it will glorify God. And what did Jesus say? The world will know the love of God because they see the love of God in us. So we have to consider unity to be among the most important things we can possibly put our time and attention to. Loving one another, caring for one another, building relationships here, right? Not just coming to church, building relationships, building connections, serving each other, right? Giving to meet each other's needs, walking alongside people who are struggling. And if somebody falls flat on their face, we get on the ground with them and we pick them up and we restore them. And we have those doors wide open every single day, every single week. The doors are wide open. You can come. Come and see the love that God has for you and come and see a new community of love that's on mission together to advance the cause of Christ. The church right now is splintered into 40,000 denominations. It is my hope and prayer that this church would be united in love with our differences, with our diversity, and that we might even work, imagine this, to unite the churches of the valley. There are 120 churches in this valley. They each are all amazing in their own way. They each have their own unique distinctives. What if there is a way to work together? I don't have any plans right now. It's hard. We've tried. It was some success, but a lot of resistance. How can we, how can we get the churches of the valley to experience this, this radical unity together? And I don't know what to do about the world, but I do know that Jesus prayed that this would be a global community of faith that loves one another perfectly. Let's pray. God, we are handling a, a very sensitive passage this week. It is the holy of holies of the Bible as the Son of God prays to the Father God and pours out his heart right before his crucifixion. And he is praying to you for these, these three things that we've studied, that we would know how perfectly united we are to you purely by your grace based on nothing we've done that we would be united in our mission together to advance the cause of Christ, even with all of our differences and diversity, advance the cause of Christ, revealing your transforming grace, building a new community of love, equipping the next generation and serving people in need. And I pray that there would be this, this clear vision in each of our hearts, the vision that Jesus expressed during this prayer, that we would have perfect love for one another, experience a radical unity so much so that the world will know your love because they see how we love one another. I pray that we would embrace this big tent vision, embrace diversity, embrace a difference of opinion, and know that's our strength, not our weakness, as we share the love of Christ with a world who needs love so desperately. God, we receive this love from you. Receive this gift of grace and mercy and forgiveness through Jesus Christ. We accept it. We are in the river who is Jesus Christ, this pure, refreshing, new, living water. And so, God, we thank you for that living water. Thank you for that eternal life. I pray that we would live in such a way that the world would see your love so fully they would want to follow him.
In Christ's name we pray. Amen.